Well, guys, I'm going to sit down for this one. Uh, I actually ended up changing my message. I had another message that I was going to share on contentment, but the Lord laid it on my heart to just kind of spend this last session getting real with you guys, uh, sharing my testimony and pouring my heart out, just sharing a few things that are heavy on my heart that, that I didn't get to really touch on uh, in the different sessions that I shared. But look, I know that there are perhaps a number of things that I talked about during my sessions. There are going to be maybe a number of things that I'm going to talk about during this final session that are new to some of you guys. And not just new in that maybe you've never heard them before, but maybe there are things that really clash with a certain mindset and outlook and perspective you've had over the course of your entire lifetime. And I've always been challenged in my own life when I hear things that I'm not familiar with to always ask myself, Lord, is this something that's based on your word that maybe I missed? But if it's in your word, I know it's something that I need to submit myself to. And my challenge to all of you guys is to take all the things that I've shared with you over the course of this weekend and to be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. It says, those who are in Berea were more noble-minded than those who are in Thessalonica because they not only received the word with great eagerness, but they also examined or searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. And that's my challenge. Take everything I've shared and then test it with the word of God. Don't take my word for it. And then if it aligns, you need to ask yourself, am I going to submit to God or am I going to fight against God? I remember many, many years ago, we were driving through town with our kids when all of a sudden our three-year-old daughter, Julia, had an epiphany in the backseat of our minivan. We were teaching her to read, and she's, she's brilliant, right? She was reading at a second grade level before she had even turned four, but she was about three at the time, and she was just learning the alphabet, and all of a sudden in the back of the van, she goes, Mom, Mom, Dad, Dad, Jesus, you spell Jesus with a G, Jesus! I thought, you know, actually, that's quite profound, right? She's making logical connections. Logically speaking, that makes sense. G, Jesus. I go, honey, that is so smart. I'm just so, I'm so amazed that you thought of that. But actually, sweetheart, you spell Jesus with a J. No, 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 dad, listen. Jesus! I go, honey, again, that's just so, so great. But, you know, you gotta, you gotta trust mom and dad. We know, we know a little better than you about how to you know, how to kind of spell Jesus. And all of a sudden, we hear that dreaded silence followed by, ah! sweetheart, what's the matter? You and mom don't understand how to spell. She's 24 now, and uh, not much has changed. <laughs> but brothers, I couldn't help but think of that and make a connection between that and sometimes how we are with God's word, right? We are so convinced it must be this way. And then we end up finding ourselves arguing with the authority. You don't want to argue with God. You want to yield. You want to surrender. You want to have that tender heart that says, God, I'm not going to be the stereotypical stubborn man who thinks he knows it all. Man, it, it, it's, it's really scary. You have to understand, I was talking with a brother about this actually last night. Satan's ultimate goal for us as people is to try to usurp the place of God. And we don't think of it concretely like that, but you go back to the Garden of Eden, right? I mean, you remember, you will, right? God knows you will be like God. 
What was Satan's sin? I will ascend. I will be like the Most High. And what's that mean? We want to take the place of God, right? And imagine that thought, right? We little itty-bitty microscopic little creatures think that we're going to know what's best for our lives and take the place of God. I remember years ago, Ray and I were open there preaching in uh, Santa Monica, and this guy comes up, and he begins to declare himself to be God. And this dude had like this deep, booming voice, and he started to speak in like super eloquent old English and, 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 and like utter, you know, these like supposed prophetic declarations about him being God. I am the Lord thy God, you know? I mean, it was, it was intense, man. And then in the midst of it, Ray just all of a sudden goes, hey, what's your name? And in the midst of it, Larry. <laughs> Larry. God's name is Larry. But man, I, I just thought, what a... What a appropriate picture that is of how ridiculous we look when we try to usurp the place of God. So brothers, I hope you'll do that. You'll yield to the Lord and say, God, my life is yours and you know best. As I've shared with you guys, I was born in Lebanon, that little Middle Eastern country that's just north of Israel. This was back in 1975. And one day, suddenly, on a January morning in 1980, I found myself being snatched out of bed, thrown into the back of a car, and then driven through the crazy streets of Beirut, Lebanon, only to then be thrown on this giant metal tube called an airplane and flown thousands of miles to this new and marvelous, wonderful, strange land called the United States of America. And when you're that age, you know, you don't have much say in the matter. It's not like they ask you if you'd like to go or not. You're, you're more like glorified luggage, you know? Meet my son, Louis Vuitton, and they just kind of toss you in, you know? And so there I was, little four-and-a-half-year-old Emile Zwayne waddling off the plane. I was like this big, but my eyeballs were as big as they are now. They looked like basically <laughs> two basketballs. I was like a little, you know, little kind of gremlin on, on feet, you know, just waddling around. And, I, you know, I didn't know what to expect. All my senses were being assaulted from every angle. I go to school and, you know, kids are coming up to me like, hey, what's up, dude? And I'm like, <laughs> you know, doing that thing. And didn't speak any English, you know, they, going in the cafeteria, I'm expecting like hummus and like falafel, they'll give me this thing called a sloppy joe, I'm like, what in the world, man? Anyhow, coming from a war-torn country, going into kindergarten shortly after I had arrived, didn't speak any English, didn't know the customs, the culture, and having this chip on my shoulder, because I grew up in a country that had so much hostility, I was, I was a pretty intense little kid, I was you know, getting in fights immediately, choking kids, stealing from the little cubby holes, you know, in the classroom. And it just continued to escalate from there and get worse. You know, you have to remember in Lebanon, man, we were fighting for our lives. I, I remember one time my brother, he was, you know, maybe 16, 17, he would go out and fight with the militia groups. And here's my mom, you know, going crazy, trying to keep him from going out. I remember one time, this vivid memory in my mind, he was heading toward the door to go out. He had his, his, his you know, shirt in his hand that he was going to go out and put on and fight with. And I remember my mom had hidden the key. Back then, you, you had a key, locked the door. There was no like thing you turned. And she wouldn't give him the key. And I remember he was walking toward the door. My mom was holding on to his shirt. He was dragging her across the floor, kicked the door out, and went out into the dark of night to fight. And so that was kind of what had shaped my mind and my heart. So I, was, I had a rough edge to me. And from there, it just got worse and worse and worse. And I remember... The, the things that I was doing, man, just vandalizing cars. I was putting on a Cub Scout uniform, going door to door, collecting money for kids in need, a.k.a. my candy fund, 
right? It was terrible. And when I finally hit high school, that's when things really took a turn for the worse. I got into my first high school. I was my class president after I deceived the student body with my smooth and flattering speech, and I sat on my throne and started wreaking havoc. I always wanted to be a little Arab king, and I would tell kids that I came from a, 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 another country because there was a coup, and my dad was a king, and I was a prince, you know, and so I just, I wanted to rule everybody. I weighed like two and a half pounds. Worship me, I'm the king, you know, and uh, so I, anyway, I, I got my, my heart's desire fulfilled by being the class president. By, by the end of that school year, I ended up getting kicked out, vandalized one of my classrooms, threatened to kill one of my teachers, and just, uh, just insanity. And so they kicked me out of my first high school. My sophomore year, they sent me to another high school, which was a, a gang-infested high school. And at that time, believe it or not, I was a rap artist. And uh, yeah, I know it's hard to believe. Uh, Brian was actually my backup dancer. <laughs> Byron was my beatboxer. But man, I was, you know, I had my artist-producer contract signed. My producers produced some of the top artists in the industry. I don't know if you guys uh, remember Montel Jordan, that, that famous song, This Is How We Do It. My producer wrote that song. Uh, you guys might remember Coolio, uh, the Gangster Paradise album. My, my producer wrote most of the songs on that album. So I was, you know, 15 years old, man. I was headed for the big time. These guys had, had heard me rap on a, on a demo that for someone else that was using their studio, and they, they really liked me and took me on. And so first day on that campus, I'm walking around. I ran into a kid, and we just started talking. I told my rap. I used to go on the local KISS FM station and do rap battles and stuff back then. And so he said, hey, man, come hang out with us. We hang out over here at, at lunchtime. So I go hang out with him. One day turned into two days, two days in a week, a week into a month. One day we're walking off campus, and they go, hey, man, we want to jump you in in our gang. And come to find these guys were members of the Crips. And being a bonehead and wanting to belong and desiring to, you know, have power and what have you, I said, all right, man. And so if you know anything about becoming a member of a gang, typically they do what's called jump you in. And a few of the guys will beat you to a pulp for a certain amount of time. And so we got to it and they, they beat on me hard, man. And uh, when the dust settled, I kind of stood there stunned thinking, man, I'm, I'm now a member of the Crips, one of the most notorious gangs in the United States of America. And from there, things just spiraled out of control. And by the end of that sophomore year, I now got kicked out of my second high school. Uh, I had a grade point average of 0.32. Four Fs, two D minuses. And the D minuses were in PE and drama. I think it's illegal to get an F in those classes. And the teachers didn't want me back the next year either. So they're like, let's just get him out by the skin of his teeth, you know? And so they kicked me out, and man, I was, things were just going crazy. And I remember one time my sister was over, and my whole family was over, but one of my sisters began to rail on me and say, you're a loser, you're worthless, you're not going to amount to anything. And I remember something in me just snapped. I jumped up, I lunged for the kitchen drawer, I grabbed a knife, and I just started stabbing wildly at my wrist. I literally wanted to die. It was by God's grace that the knife that I had grabbed was a dull knife, because I don't know if I'd be here to tell this story today, but the Lord spared me, and yet still things got worse and worse. And then one day, my best friend that I grew up with invited me to this thing called the Harvest Crusade. And he said, hey, this is this Christian thing my parents told me to go do, and they told me to invite you, so you want to go? And this was about a month before we were supposed to go, so I go, yeah, all right, I'll, I'll go. Had no idea why I said yes. Now I know it was God's divine grace and providence. But 
time went by, and then the day came when we were supposed to go. I got up and went about my same sinful career, and um, I remember uh, near the end of the evening, I went up to my mom. I said, hey, mom, I'm, I'm going to some Christian thing with my friend Bill tonight. She goes, yeah, right, you liar. And here I was for the first time in my life telling her the truth, right? She wouldn't believe me. And so I got mad. I mean, I, I, I had a real, real, real temper, really angry young man, bitter, chip on my shoulder. And I used to have posters all over my wall in my bedroom and on the closet doors. And it wasn't just because I loved those rap groups on the posters, but it was because there were holes all over my walls, my closet doors. Whenever I'd get mad, I'd go in, I'd just punch a hole, you know, into the wall or the closet door. And so as my mom was contending with me on that and telling me that I was lying, I got mad. I started punching the walls. I started getting enraged. And right at that moment, my friend pulls up. Man, I was this close, this close to not going with him. I was going to go and do what my mom thought I was going to do. Because she had to say, oh, you're going to go and drink and do your thing. And, but by God's providence, I got into that car. And, and, and man, the whole way there, I was just fuming. And my friend had heard my mom and I talking. And he's like, hey, man, well, what's going on? My poor, my poor American friends, they never knew what was going on. right? They didn't understand the language. And it's like, you know, it's like, man, what's happening? It's like, hey, bro, we're just talking about what we're going to have for lunch. <laughs> you know? And it's like World War III going, ah! We're just going crazy. And, so he's like, what happened? I said, nothing. He's like, well, come on, man. I said, nothing. And the whole way there, I was just, man, in, intensely irate. And finally, we get there, and we walk in, and I was in utter, utter shock. I thought we were going to go to a little church house, go into a room with an old guy and maybe 20 people, and we were going to hear Bible stories. We walk into this Pacific Amphitheater in Costa Mesa, and there were over 20 thousand people there that night. And again, I had no idea. I'm like, what is this, man? I grew up Catholic, so I never, you know, saw anything like that. And so we go in and I was just kind of sort of in a daze, like, what, what is all this? And I remember when the worship started, everyone stood up to their feet and began to sing. I was just blown away. I'd never seen anything like that, man. These people were, were beaming with joy you could see light in their eyes. They had their hands lifted up, singing toward the heavens. I'm like, man, these people are acting like, like God is here or something. <laughs> Little did I know that he was. And God began to just tenderize my heart. And then when the preacher got up and began to preach, it was as if though he had been video recording every moment of my life that the things that I had been thinking about, the things that I had been involved in, it's like he knew about it all. You know, I remember I had everything a young man my age could want. I had popularity, I had pleasure, I had power. But man, I, I knew that, that something wasn't right. I was void of the life of God. And see, my problem was, though, even though I was, you know, in, in, in all that, because back, back in the day when I was a kid, you know, by, when I was about eight years old, I, I reformed. I decided, you know what, I'm, I'm going to change my life. I'm going to be a good kid because I was a part of the Catholic Church and I did what was called my, my first Holy Communion. And I remember I decided I'm going to be a different person. I stopped lying and stealing and, and fighting and robbing banks and carjacking all by the age of eight, right? And I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change my life. And I remember I created this long list of do's and don'ts, things I would always do, things I would never do. And man, I abided by that list. But you know what it's like, right? Jesus said, you try to clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is still dirty. It's like, you know, whitewashed tombs. 
you know, you go to a local pig farm, you pick up a nice pink porky pig, you take it home, throw it in the bathtub, shave it from hoof to snout, douse it with perfume and cologne, take it down to the local tuxedo shop, get it a nice customized pig tuxedo with a nice top hat and a pink pig bow tie, get it some plastic surgery, take it to the dentist, get some dentures made for it, then take this little pig home, right, and, and seat it at a, at a banquet table and, and put a nice big spread. I mean, you've got guests of honor there, Miss Piggy, babe, the three little pigs, right? You've got pork chops, bacon, ham, right? And you lay it all out. Do you think that pig is going to be concerned about being adorned with all these products of fluff? Once you let that pig go, what's it going to do? It's going to go right back to the pig pen. Why? Because it's a pig at heart. It doesn't matter what you do to the outside. And that's what I was doing. I was trying to alter the outside, but I hadn't been regenerated. I hadn't been yet born again. And so things went downhill from there. And so I'm sitting there in this place, a preacher's preaching. And yet, you know, my problem was, as, as a lot of our problem is, is that I thought I was okay because I would compare myself to other people. You see, you come up to the guy smoking weed. You say, hey, man, what are you doing? He says, look, bro, I know I shouldn't be smoking weed, but I'm, I'm a good person. At least I'm not like that guy who's slamming heroin, the most addictive, destructive drug. So we go up to Mr. Heroin. What's up, man? What are you doing? Look, I know I shouldn't be swear, slamming heroin, but I'm a good person. At least I'm not hurting anyone. He's a rapist. You go to the rapist. What's he say? Oh, I, know I'm ra I know I rape women, but man, at least I haven't deprived anyone the right to live. That guy's a murderer. So we go to the murderer very carefully. Hello, Mr. Murderer. How are you today? But even the murderer will do what? He'll look and he'll say, look, I know I shouldn't be committing murder, but I'm a good person. At least I'm not like Hitler and Mussolini who murdered millions of people, right? It's like you take a white sheep, put it out in a pasture, you watch it eating green grass. It looks really white with that green background behind it. But take that sheep, put it in the barn, let it snow overnight, bring it out with that pure white snowy background, and it doesn't look so white anymore. I'm going to speak to that a little later here in my message, but that was my problem. I wasn't comparing myself to the righteousness of God, but God opened my eyes and I recognized, man, I am in big, big trouble with God. There's coming a day of judgment and I'm going to stand before him and give account and there is nothing hidden from the sight of him with whom we have to do. But then the preacher gave the gospel message and man, it was like lights on. God opened my eyes. Suddenly that Christ on that crucifix that I saw in church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday suddenly made sense to me. I understood he left the heights of heaven, became a man, went to the cross, gave his life for me, died, rose again, and he came to set me free. And when that invitation was given, I was probably the first person to jump up and run forward. I was broken, man. I was a, such a wicked, wretched young man, sexually immoral, beyond description, lost my virginity at 14. I just, I lived to, to, to indulge in sexual immorality. And the Lord just opened my eyes. I remember I stood there and it was like the heavens were open. I envisioned Jesus hanging on that cross and I understood what it meant. The floodgates of my eyes burst and I cried out in repentance and faith and was radically revolutionized. I remember, man, I felt like I had been carrying a thousand pounds of weight on my shoulders and it was as though the Lord lifted them up. I felt as light as a feather. Remember, we get in my friend's car, we're heading home and I was just brand new. I remember going, you know, man, what's going on? And he turns on the same filthy, wicked radio station we used to listen to. I go, bro, what are you doing? We're Christians. We don't listen to that stuff anymore. He's like, whoa, dude, slow down. I get home. I get out of the car. I'm walking into the house. And remember, my mom and I had gotten in a fight before I left. And 
I'm walking in and I see my mom standing in the kitchen through the window. They had found out a bunch of things I had been involved in that day. And my mom said to my, my, my dad, she's like, he's, he's, he's out of here. I'm going to pack his bags. I can't take it anymore. But he and my brother convinced her to not say anything and to just monitor me and wait. And, but you know moms, man, they can't hold anything in. So I, I see her through the window. And she sees me and she goes into that, I'm going to kill you mom stance, <laughs> you know. And I walk through the door and I go, hi, mom. I had this like Holy Spirit permigrant from ear to ear, man. I was a new creation. I was just radically revolutionized. And I go, hi, mom. She goes, hi, huh? You've been doing this, haven't you? I said, yeah, mom, I have. She practically flew back and fell over 20 feet because I'd never once confessed to anything. So she took another side. You've been doing this too, haven't you? And I said, yeah, mom, I have. I said, not just that, but a whole lot more. We went in her room, sat down, and I told her everything I had been involved in from A to Z. And she began to weep. She had no idea. I said, Mom, but I want you to mark these words. From this night forward, nothing will ever be the same. That was August 15, 1991. My mom passed away on May 22, 1994. She died of cancer. And by God's grace, until the day she died, she never forgot those words because she saw how the Lord truly and radically revolutionized me. I called up my homies after I got saved. You know, when you get into a gang, you got to get jumped in. To get out, you got to get jumped out. Same way, they get, they're going to beat you, but now you're not on good terms with them. They're not happy you're leaving the gang. So, so sometimes they can beat you near to death. There's stories out there, right? And so I called them. I said, hey, man, I know I got to get out how I got in, but um, God changed my life, and I, I'm, I'm out. So you guys let me know what you want to do. And they're like, well, 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 we'll talk about this. We'll get back to you. And Later, they called me. They're like, look, man, we don't want to have anything to do with this God stuff. Kind of like, you know, the superstitious. We don't want to touch God's kid. That's fine. You're out. And they let me out without jumping me out. I had uh, struck a drug deal. I I was going to get some cocaine. And then after that, a gun. I was going to have people start dealing drugs for me. And I was supposed to meet the drug dealers at a certain time and place to make the trade. But of course, I wasn't there. My friend was there. And he came back. He said, bro, these guys are going to kill you. Like, they, they were not happy that you reneged on the deal and weren't there. And so I remember I called them up. I'm like, hey, man, hey, look, I know we had this deal, but uh, I, I'm, I'm born again now, and I'm living for the Lord. And they're like, what, man? They're like, we go to Bible study. We, we go to church. We love God, but you got to make your living, man. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Drug dealer for Jesus. Why not? You got everything else for Jesus these days. Uh, but I said, man, no, I'm, I'm living for the Lord. And by God's grace, they, they let me off the hook. Remember, we had our artist-producer contract signed. We were in the studio. We were heading for the big time, and I called up my producers. I said, guys, look, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't pretend to be one guy on stage, another guy off stage, right, because the stuff I rapped about was filthy. I said, so I'm, I'm out, and I, they were just in disbelief. I remember my, my DJ goes, man, what are you doing? I said, hey, man, I, I'm, 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 all, I'm all in for the Lord, and he goes, yeah, man, I go, I go, you know, I've done my catechism. I love God, but why are you letting God get in between us? I couldn't even believe he said that. I said, what do you mean God getting in between us? People get in between God and those who love him. I used to always try to get back into that first high school where I was my class president, and they would laugh at me. Like, you get rid of a disease. Why in the world would you willingly take it back? The principal said to my family, if easy comes back to the school, I'm quitting my job. That's how bad it was. And I called them. I said, hey, I got born again, and I'm a new person. God's changed my life. I, I really want to come back. They said, well, we're going to have to have an administrative meeting about this. People were always meeting about me in those days. So they had their meeting. 
and they got back to me and I said, okay, we're going to send you to a continuation school the first semester of your junior year. If you do well there, we'll take you back. So I got back in. I, I went to that continuation school. And by the end of that first semester back, I ended up being elected as the most improved male student on campus. They had what, held a big banquet at the Elks Club for me, gave me an award. My parents came. They're just like, what in the world happened to this kid? You know, I go back to my high school at the end of that semester, like they told me to. I gave them my transcript. The principal's looking at it. Her jaw's hitting the ground. She's like, what got into you? I said, the Lord. The Lord got into me. The Lord transformed me. And so even though they were still hesitant, they had no choice but to welcome me back because they told me they would. So I get back on that campus. And I was a terror, man. You know, those narcs during lunchtime that would <laughs> float around, they hated me, man. I terrorized their lives. And they couldn't believe it when they saw me back. But I prayed for something specific. I said, Lord, you, you know how much they know how, how lost and how destructive I was. Please demonstrate to them you've truly transformed me. And I prayed for something specific. And by the end of that semester, God answered that prayer. I went from that 0.32 GPA to 4.0 my first semester back started teaching Bible study on campus and reaching out to people. Everything about me changed, the way I talked, acted, thought, felt. I was truly a new creation in Christ. Graduated from high school, went to Biola University. I was a biblical studies major. Ended up becoming a part of a Bible study uh, that blew up to over 200 people, I and I was asked to be a part of that leadership. And then eventually I ended up co-planting a church through that Bible study that exploded and, and began to pastor. And uh, then one day I met this insane little New Zealander named Ray Comfort, <laughs> and everything really took a, a new turn from there, ended up uh, becoming a part of the ministry after pastoring for six and a half years. And uh, now when I step back and I look at what the Lord has done, you know, I, I, I'm the executive producer of and the co-host of our television program, which airs in every country in the world. I, I uh, you know, uh, part of our YouTube channel that now has a million subscribers, we're, we're nearing 200 million views. I, I, by God's grace, I get to travel the world and, and to share his word and uh, to, to be with men like you and to, to share his truth. And when I look and I see all that he's done, brothers, I'm just blown away. And I want you to know, those of you here who maybe haven't surrendered to Christ yet, that God wants you to know the beauty and the sweetness of the gospel. Like I said earlier, a lot of times we compare ourselves to others. And that's a problem. On the day of judgment, God isn't going to compare you to other people. He's not going to compare you to Hitler or to Mussolini or to the grandma next door. He's going to compare you to his own standard of righteousness. You're familiar with the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were given to us sort of like a mirror. When you look into a mirror, it reflects back to you what's true about yourself. And when you look at that standard, if you've ever so much as told one lie by God's standard, you're a liar. If you've ever stolen anything despite its value, or how long ago you took it, you would be a thief in the sight of God. If you've ever used God's name in vain, think about it. Think about who's the worst person that has ever lived, and you'll say Hitler. Have you ever used Hitler's name to replace a cuss word? You'd stub your, your, your toe, you, you hit your thumb with a hammer, oh, Hitler! You ever done that? but we do that with the name of the God who gave us life and breath. And the Bible says God will not hold them guiltless who takes his name in vain. Jesus said, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery already with her in your heart. Brothers, you have to understand that if you stand before God on the day of judgment and you don't have the righteous 
blood of Christ covering you, you will give account for every sin you've ever committed, every lustful thought you've ever had, every time you've indulged in pornography. God has seen it all. And I know that that is a massive pandemic today within Christianity because now we have access to all the filth we want at the press of a button wherever we're at from a thing that we can hide in our pocket in any room we go into. I'm writing a book right now on sexual purity and, uh, and trust me, having been lost and, and having been so sexually moral and as a new believer, man, it, it was such a difficult struggle. But brothers, you have to understand that this is destroying you. It's going to destroy successive generations, your children, your grandchildren. It hinders you in more ways than you can understand. But aside from, 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 from literal adultery, every time you've lusted, that is like adultery of the heart. And you're going to give account to God for every single one of those accounts. If you've ever had unjust anger or hatred toward anyone in your heart, you're guilty of murder in the sight of God. You have to understand this. This is, not, this is not a joke. It's not a game. God is going to judge you for every deed on the day of judgment if you're not born again. And just by the, the commandments I shared, that would make you a liar, a thief, a blasphemer, an adulterer, a murderer. And the Bible says if you've sinned in one point of God's law, you're guilty of the entire thing. But you know what the biggest danger is, brothers? It's thinking that we know the Lord when we might not really know him at all. See, even where I was as a gangster, I still thought, oh, I'm okay with God, right? Because, hey, I mean, I pray at night, and then I, I go to church, and I believe in God. The Bible says the demons believe and tremble. I want you to listen to this, to this verse here in Matthew chapter 7, and listen to the seriousness of what Jesus said. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Wow. Guys, I cannot think of anything more devastating than this. Jesus is saying here that there are going to be many people who will live, live their lives thinking that they knew God, thinking that they were born again, but when they're going to stand before him, he's going to say to them, it's not you didn't know me only, I never knew you. Why? Because you practiced lawlessness, because you weren't ever truly regenerated and born again. You claim to know me, Jesus scripture says, they profess to know God in Titus 1.16, but by their deeds they deny him. It says in 1 John, by this we know we've come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. It's not talking about perfection. It doesn't mean you never stumble or struggle. Not at all. We all do as Christians. But it means that the habitual pattern of your life is a lifestyle of sin. Christ is not the center of your life. You indulge in, in pornography. You give yourself over to drunkenness. You have no problem with a filthy mouth and gossip and slander and pride. That's the, your tenor of your life. And then you just attach God to, oh, I, but I believe in God. No, he's going to say to you on that day, I never knew you. And guys, I can't think of anything that brings with it more regret than that. I'll never forget a number of years ago going to one of the Lakers playoff games. I remember during halftime, they began to flash images of Kobe Bryant up on the screen, showing him stealing the ball, making incredible passes, dunking over his opponents, making buzzer-beating shots. 
the whole crowd rose to its feet and everyone began to chant in unison, MVP, MVP, MVP. I remember looking down and seeing Kobe Bryant's face beaming with joy. It was probably one of the highlights of his career. And then it's as if though I blinked and there he was on my television screen sitting next to his wife, surrounded by reporters, confessing that he had committed adultery. And then he looked at the camera and said something in a way that I'll never forget. He said, if only I can turn back the hands of time. And I thought, wow, what an apt picture that is of regret. You want to go back, you want to undo it, you want to change it, but you can't. The man who had been told time and again, hey, you need to kick the bottle, man. This, this is going to destroy your life. He doesn't know regret until he wakes up in a jail cell after his drinking and driving accident, being told that he just killed a family of five. He wishes he could go back and undo it, but he can't. It's too late. The man who had been told, man, you need, to, you need to kick this sexual morality, be faithful to your wife, he doesn't understand regret until he finds himself sitting in the doctor's office being told he's HIV positive. Wants to go back, undo it, but he can't. The man who, who went skydiving, his friends told him, bro, you sure you want to do that? It's not a sin. There's nothing wrong with it. But man, you got a wife and three kids. You sure you want to do that? He doesn't understand regret until he finds himself in midair, having pulled the cord to his parachute, only to look up and see it tangled. And as he's accelerating toward the earth, his body's in perfect shape, not a scratch on it. But with each passing second, he knows it is the end. That is a regret. Wishing he can get back in that plane, go back on the ground, listen to his friends, but he can't. And in a matter of seconds, it's over. But brothers, take all of that, combine it together, and multiply it a trillion times, a trillion times, a hundred quadrillion, and it doesn't even come close to comparing to standing before God on that day and hearing Jesus say to you, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Brothers, I don't want that for you. I don't want that for you. And I know that a lot of us have what I call the invincibility complex. I had it as a kid. I remember one time getting on a bus, going on a field trip with my class, and all of a sudden, I just felt invincible. I looked over at my teacher and I said, you know what? I have a feeling like if this bus were to roll off a cliff right now and just blow up, I would just get up and walk away. Now you know why they put me next to the teacher. And it seemed like it was just months, even though it was years later, I was holding my own dear mother in my arms and I watched her turn into 80 pounds of skin and bones and die of cancer. And it was a wake-up call to me about my mortality. I remember, I remember seeing all of the invincible, untouchable heroes of my day. Remember Muhammad Ali? I would see him running around the ring, chanting his famous one-liners, demolishing his opponents into dust. And then I blinked, and there he was on my television screen, standing on a stage to receive an award, his hands shaking from the advanced stages of Parkinson's disease, his fast-firing one-liners reduced to two or three slowly spoken word sentences. I thought, wow, how the mighty have fallen. And then that day came, just like with Kobe that I heard, Muhammad Ali had died and gone in the way of all the earth. Remember Superman? Faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. And I turned my head and looked back, and there he was, Christopher Reeve on my television screen, a quadriplegic. He exchanged his cape for a wheelchair, his mighty wind-gushing lungs for a ventilator, his bulletproof and robust body for one that no longer worked. And then the day came that I heard that Superman had died. Remember walking the streets of New York just a few days after 9-11. Remember seeing people standing there, staring up into the sky as smoke was still rising from the ashes of the towers, shaking their heads in disbelief that thousands of people were going about their day like normal. They were planning their vacations, they were telling jokes, they were surfing the web, and in a split second, without warning, they were transferred from time into eternity. Guys, 150,000 people die every 24 hours. 
I heard my dad's age. It sounds like a long time. Eternity is forever. And if you don't have the righteous blood of Christ covering you, you're going to spend an eternity in hell. And I say that with grief and sadness, but I got to tell you the truth. And maybe some of you are sitting here saying, man, I tried this Christian thing and it just, it doesn't connect with me. It doesn't work. I don't, I don't get it. And, and my answer to you is don't be surprised because what, what might be happening is you're trying to enjoy the things of Christianity when you're not a Christian. It's like we take a caterpillar crawling around, you know, in the grass, we stick it in a box, we hop on a plane, fly to New York. We take out a little jet lag caterpillar, we stick a little tight blue suit on it, a little red cape, a tiny little S on its chest. Then we dangle it over the edge of the Empire State Building. And just in case any of you bros happen to be insects rights activists, we accidentally let it go. Then we go up to what's now splat all over the sidewalk, we raise it from the dead, and we ask this caterpillar if it had a pleasurable experience being tossed off the top of the Empire State Building. You know as well as I do that if that caterpillar had a fist, it would knock your teeth out. But imagine taking that caterpillar after it's been transformed into a butterfly and then taking it to the top of the Empire State Building and letting it go and then afterward asking it, did you have a pleasurable experience? It's going to tell you, man, I had the time of my little butterfly life. <laughs> why? Because now it's got the wings, and that's why Jesus said, you must be born again. It's not like joining a club. It's not like signing up to do some religious duties and activities. It's being totally transformed, receiving a new heart and a new nature where God becomes your everything. And guys, my challenge to you is, how much do you value your soul? If I come up to you right now and I offered you a million dollars cold cash tax-free to sell me one of your eyes. We do a painless surgery. You'll get a glass eye so you won't look weird and you'll still have vision out of the other eye. wonder how many of you would do it. Maybe a few. If I upped it to 100 million, I guarantee you I would get a many more eyeballs this morning. Now, ooh, 100 million bucks, bro, right? But I have yet to meet one person in their right mind who would sell both their eyes for all the money in the world. Why is that? What are your eyes? They're just these two little balls of flesh. They, they're like ping pong balls. They may weigh five ounces combined, but your eyes are the windows to your soul. There's something looking out of these eyes. And if these little windows are more valuable to you than all the money in the world, how much more valuable should be the soul that's looking out of them? Most of us say we wouldn't sell our eyes for all the money in the world, but in essence, we sell our soul for a dollar. So guys, what are you going to do? What are you holding on to? There's an interesting story that surrounds the death of the former European emperor Charlemagne. Legend has it before Charlemagne died, he called together his servants and he gave them specific instructions to be carried out after his death. He said, after I die, I want you to take my body, place it sitting upright on my tomb. I want you to, to place my crown on my head, put my mantle around my shoulders, put my royal scepter in my hand, and then gather all my treasure and put it around me. And then I want you to take a specific book and to place it open to a specific section and to put it on my lap. Well, the day came when Charlemagne died like all men die, and the Emperor Othello, a couple hundred years later, was reigning in his place, and he heard about this legend. He wanted to see if it was true. So Othello called together his servants, and he sent them out to go and to investigate the burial site. And so they went, they investigated, and they came back, and they reported that sure enough, Charlemagne's request had been carried out. But only now, 200 years later, that body that at one time sat up majestic and erect was now a heap of bones. 
That crown that used to shimmer and sparkle in the light was now tarnished by time. That royal scepter that he used to wave around with authority had rolled to the ground, and his mantle, along with all the treasure, was filled with dust, but upon his skeletal thighs was the book he requested, the Word of God, and they reported that his bony index finger was pointing to the portion of God's Word which says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? And that's the question before you, brothers. What will it profit you if you gain everything you want to gain, do everything you want to do, have all that you want to do, and in the end, you enter eternity and you spend that eternity in hell? Why? Because you've offended a holy God. We deserve hell because our sins have been against a God that's so holy and that is eternal, it requires an eternal punishment. But I want to leave you with the good news today, brothers. The good news after the bad news that you've sinned against God, that you deserve his wrath and judgment, is that 2,000 years ago, Christ became a man, walked this earth, went to a cross, died, and rose again. You see, what you need is you need righteousness. Because to get into heaven by God's standard, you have to be perfect. But we're not perfect. We're sinners in word, thought, and deed. But when Jesus came down to this earth, if you can imagine this illustration to help kind of paint the picture, he was wearing a robe that said perfect all over it. Why? Because he's God. He's perfect in righteousness. But when he came, he took that robe off and he laid it down, if you can imagine. But he still had, tat he still had scrawled all over his body, perfect, perfect, because he's God, he remained perfect. But then he came up to sinners like us and he took off of us the robes that we're wearing that say sin all over them and he put them on himself and then he went to the cross. And this is where God demonstrated two things. He demonstrated his justice and his holiness and he demonstrated his mercy and his grace because then he poured out his wrath upon Jesus as if though he were us because he took our sin on himself. He demonstrated his justice by punishing wrath, but then he demonstrated by pouring out wrath and punishing sin, but then he demonstrated grace and mercy by pouring it out on Jesus who took our sins upon himself willingly. So that now if we acknowledge our sin, we don't try to clean ourselves up, we don't try to change ourselves, but recognize that salvation is a free gift and he did it all. It's completely free. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. It would be an insult to God. It's like someone gives you a Lamborghini. You say, no, I can't accept that. Here's five cents. I'm going to pay for it. You can never, ever pay off the sins that you've committed, but he took the wrath of God that you deserve, took your place after living the perfect life of righteousness that you couldn't live rose again three days later, and now if you repent, place your faith in him, believe he did it all, and receive that gift of everlasting life. He'll wipe away every sin you've ever committed. He'll give you everlasting life, and then guess what he'll do? He'll take that robe that Jesus was wearing that said perfect all over it, and he'll put it on you so that now when God sees you, he sees you clothed in perfect righteousness, not your own, but his as a free gift, and now you can enter his kingdom forever. So brothers, I hope that you get this today. I hope if you haven't yet repented and surrendered to Christ that you would do that. And if you do know the Lord, but you recognize that you've been, you've been living in rebellion, but you've had that conviction and you know you need to get right with the Lord, do that, guys. Do that. Because you're, you're accumulating scars. You're passing up opportunities to be effective for the Lord. You're minimizing your impact on your children and the success of generations. And God doesn't take lightly to lukewarmness. Revelation chapter 3, the church of Laodicea. Repent and get right with the Lord and let him transform you. I'll leave you with this poem I wrote years ago. I have a valiant hero who one day rescued me. He found me bound in bondage and chose to set me free. Although he knew the greatness of the price he'd have to pay, without a hesitation, he gave his life away. 
I could not understand it, and still I do not know why he treated me as friend when I had treated him as foe. If only you would meet him, you'd see he is true, and he'd become your hero and gladly rescue you. Come now, adore his beauty, observe his pleasant ways, sit silently and listen and fix a steady gaze. Hear him speak his gentle words that calm the raging heart. See him mend and heal the lives that once were torn apart. Hear his sayings of wisdom, see his brilliant joys, observe the great and violent hate his holy love destroys. Come and see humility that cannot be compared, selfless generosity that gave and never spared. See compassion when he wept and passion when he prayed. See the spotless righteousness he constantly displayed. He truly is a hero, and I'm glad that he is mine. Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, divine. And I pray that if he's not your Lord, he will become your Lord. I pray, men, that will rise up, recognize that the time is short, that we need to redeem the time, that there's a world around us that's falling apart, but God in his abundant, overwhelming love and mercy and grace and kindness and compassion wants to enter our world as men and to use us for his glory. If you want to receive the Lord, I'm here. Brian is here. Byron is here. We have different leaders here. I'm going to stay through lunch to serve you men however I can. Come talk to me, please. Talk to any of these guys, but get your life right with the Lord. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for these brothers. Thank you for the fellowship that we've shared. Thank you for the grace that you extend to us, even in the midst of our sin. Lord, your love blows my mind that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, that we may know what is the width, the length, the depth, the height, to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. May you invade the lives of these men. May you help them to go back changed and transformed, that they wouldn't dabble with sin, Lord, and allow it to destroy them, but they would see your grace in extending your truth to them this weekend. So I thank you, Father. I commit them to you, and I pray that you would take all that you've done through your word and cause it to bear fruit in and through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.